When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 16th. Derek Van Riper here with Steven Nesbitt. Steven, thanks for stepping in for Keith again this week. Of course, always happy to join the show, DVR. So lots to talk about today because prospect season is winding down. We've got a few late promotions, one to the big leagues that happened about a week ago that I think we should discuss, and then several players getting late season bumps to double A, mostly for double A playoffs, I think, more than actual player development purposes. Uh, Minor league players have a union officially, so we'll talk a bit about the implications of that. A lot changed in a week, believe it or not. (laughs) We may get some time to talk about how the minor leagues will be different in the future, because I think there's a lot of things we'll see change in the next few years in light of recent developments. But we start with players. Josh Young is one of the last great prospects to get a bump up to the big leagues. He's getting a chance with the Rangers. I think it's interesting because... I believe in Josh Young as a hitter. I think we would have saw him a year ago if injuries hadn't uh, cost him most of last season, played a little bit uh, at the end of the season in the upper levels of the minor leagues. But this is a special hitter for me. This is a guy that's going to be a middle third of the order bat for a Texas team still working through the later stages of its rebuild. Uh, This is a team I believe in, though. I thought they were quick to make that decision on John Daniels and and Chris Woodward. I I thought that was a strange uh, bit of timing, probably based on spending a lot of money in free agency and not being in the playoff picture this year. But players like Josh Young are part of the reason why I still think this team has one more level it's going to reach, and probably it's going to start to get there in 2023. He seemed almost a little snake bit for a while with injuries, and it was a little question mark whether he was going to get here as quickly as he he did. And, And so far, what we've seen from him not otherworldly numbers, but we're talking about, I think, seven, uh, five of his seven hits so far are extra base hits. This guy is, I think, a perfect complement with the the middle infield that they signed and, and spent a half billion dollars on in Corey Seager and, and Marcus Simeon. This is a, a franchise that, that uh, well, it can't, like, spend its way th- through all its troubles. Um, they still have an outfield that you probably only recognize one name there, and Dolis Garcia. They have a starting rotation that needs help, and so they need this homegrown development, this homegrown uh, talent, and Young is is a name that Rangers fans have known for a long time, coming through Texas Tech, of course. And uh, so far, so far, so good. I think he's a guy that um, can be good pop, high on base, and that's, I think, exactly the type of player they need because they have, they have those two middle infielders locked up for a long time. Yeah, and Young, I think, is going to be right there with those guys producing at a high level for most of the time that that trio is together. I think the other part of, of why I was willing to buy some stock in the Rangers for 2023 when we talked about them on the 3-0 show 
yesterday is that this is a team that spends money. When they're competitive, yeah. they spend. They run top 10 payrolls when they're good. And I think they're maybe one more big free agent addition away from getting to what I would assume to be their current internal spending cap. They're 15th in payroll based on, on the COTS numbers going into the season at $142 million. So one more impact player could very well be on the way to Texas. I guess the question is, where exactly do you want to place that player? Do you go after an impact outfielder or do you take your chances and try and get someone to head up the rotation? Because even though he's missed some time with injuries this year, that John Gray addition looks like a good decision. Yeah. Ultimately, the performance has been good when he's been on the field this year. So you start looking at how the rotation's built. They have some young starters that still are in the upper levels of the minor leagues that could debut next year. But I think if I had to choose one or the other as far as the biggest splash they could make in free agency this winter, I think helping out the rotation would be the right way to go. I think there are a lot more ways to plug outfield holes than rotation holes. And you look at this rotation as it stands today, and I mean, what happens with Martin Perez, too, is a, is a question mark. It seems like a, a good fit for him to come back to, to Texas. And um, whether or not they do that will... I guess, uh, determine just how badly they need rotation help. But even even if he comes back, uh, Perez, Gray, you know, the rest of the rotation right now is made up with uh, Glenn Otto, Dane Dunning, um, Cole Raggins, I see, uh, in the in the roster resource page today. I mean, they're, that's not going to be the, the rotation next year. And I, I do think if you're going to make one splash, it should be that top three starting pitcher. Um, and if, uh, you know, if you, if you patch together a, an outfield that has, you know, Leo Tavares and Bubba Thompson, then you then you're an outfield that's built on speed and, and contact, and that's okay. And I think that can that can play with with some plus defense. Yeah, you look at Adelis Garcia. I think he's still there. I mean, under club yeah. control for a few more years, but he's still good enough to be an everyday guy for them next year. Even as the roster keeps getting better, he gets a spot. Leo Tavares is fun, if only because I always like to look at young players and try and figure out when we can believe in them and when we should stop believing in them. And my argument in favor of Leody Tavares prior to the season was if he'd never played in the big leagues, if he hadn't come up in 2020, played 33 games that season, if he hadn't played in the big leagues and racked up 49 more games a season ago, expectations for him based on what he had done at AAA and the age to level performances in the minor leagues would have still been pretty high. But because he came up and, and had well below average offensive production in parts of two big league seasons, I think people were kind of quick to write him off when they shouldn't have been. And this season has been a nice step forward. He's hitting 275 with a 323 OBP, still only a 385 slugging percentage. But you're talking about a speedy center fielder with non-zero pop who can play good defense. I think this is a quiet, like big win for them to have Tavares playing now at this level in the big leagues. I'd love to see a little more walk out of him, a little more on base. I don't know if they're going to get that. He never was... I mean, he never was a really big on-base guy, but I do think there's a little bit more there. And if you can have plus defense, speed, and a little bit on-base out of that position, that's great. I mean, um, you know, to the to the free agent conversation we're having, if you compare if you compare the Rangers to say the the Marlins, where we're we're looking at the Marlins, we're saying, please, for the love of God, go get a position player, go go help out your lineup. This is a team where you're not really saying that. You've already done that. You've made some big moves, and you have some. Um, have some holes, but the largest holes you have are the rotation easily. Um, 
I guess the same thing you say for the, for the angels is like, please go get some help <laughs> in the arm department. So, uh, yeah, I, you're right. It's a 24 year old we're talking about with Tavares and, um, just turned 24, like checks watched a week ago. So, uh, he's a young kid. He's a young kid. And I, I wouldn't mind seeing him starting every day next year. Remember Michael Conforto? Where's he been all year? Yeah, he's been uh, working his way back from shoulder surgery, but might be ready to sign with the team reasonably soon. Could just wait yeah. until the actual offseason to do it. But I think a player like that would fit really well. If you're looking to get a boost in a corner spot, someone that could exceed expectations, uh, the kind of guy that's already hit 30 home runs in a big league season once before, it's probably at least mid-20s home run power in a typical year when you account for how the the ball and the overall league environment has changed since we last saw Michael Conforto healthy. But I think it's a player like that on the offensive side, more of like your secondary power source that makes your lineup deeper. That's probably where they're most likely uh, to get some help this offseason. But I like the steps forward we saw from Nathaniel Lowe this year. Jonah Heim looks like a much better yeah. offensive player. He's a great defender behind the plate. Had one of the best plays of the season, too. That foul ball off his mask that he somehow managed to make a catch on. That was a, a crazy play. If you haven't seen that, check out the highlights of that in the near future. But yeah, a lot of reasons to be optimistic with the Rangers, despite changes in the front office and, of course, in the manager spot late this season. Let's talk about Jason Dominguez here for a moment, Stephen. A perfect player to bring up in the scope of expectations and how those can be so wildly unfair yeah. in some instances. I think getting the big bonus, having the the Martian nickname, being signed as an international free agent by the Yankees, all of these things lend themselves to increasing hype. Every possible thing that could make us more hyped about Jason Dominguez, those all happened. And for a little while, the stock took a hit, right? Last year, it was not the pro debut that people were hoping for, even though when you put it into the context of how old he was, he was an 18-year-old yeah. in his first professional season last year, it was fine. It was just that we had expectations that Dominguez was going to be a fast-moving teenager who was going to come up with five tools and get to the big leagues and be the next $400 million player. That was the expectation right after, after signing. And that's just, that's unfair to put on any player. Now you take a look at what he's done this year between low A and high A, getting better with the promotion, lowering his yeah. strikeout rate against better pitching. He's 36 for 43 as a base dealer on the year. 15 homers combined between the two stops. We saw the homer in the futures game back in July. A lot has gone right here for him in year two as a pro, and it seems like he has regained a lot of the the confidence and brought back some of the hype that he was carrying upon signing a few seasons ago. Yeah, he wasn't even in Keith Law's midseason ranking, which I'm sure, you know, bulletin board material right there. <laughs> but no, he was a guy who very fairly got all the hype, but also fairly was, was dinged, I think. there's um, There was... Uh, a lot of questions, as you as you should be questioning the future that people have painted for an eighteen year old, and not not his fault. So maybe when I say fairly, it's not for him personally. It's it's uh, too much was too much was hyped of this kid from an eighteen year old uh, an eighteen year old who's just entering pro ball. Like people were talking about this guy, like he was going to get one game at rookie ball, and the Yankees are going to be like, that's it, we that's it, you know, let's skip <laughs> skip right to double A, double A at this point where he he's just arriving is. Um, that's that's like the now we're talking stage. Okay, 
now now you can sort of start to see where this guy fits into your future. Until double A, I mean, Keith had to have a smarter take on this, but until he gets to double A, it's, you're not, the timeline is not really realistic. And uh, what he's done this year is absolutely give credence to, to the hype in the first place, right? He is the hitter that we were expecting to see. He has like a beautiful line uh, from uh, high A Hudson Valley was, uh, I mean, he was he, he did everything you wanted to see. He's a 300 hitter. He's a 906 OPS. Um, he had 17 swipes and 18 tries. Like he didn't. He had a healthy walk rate. He didn't strike out a whole lot. It's everything you want to see at that level from this kid. And so then you look at it, and he's a 19 year old. Uh, won't turn 20 till next February. Playing a double A. That's great. That's exactly where you want to see a kid like that. So um, he has he has certainly earned all the hype back. Looking at the leaderboard for high A, I filtered it down to players 21 years of age or younger. Jason Dominguez tied with Vaughn Grissom, who's now up in the big leagues, yep. in terms of WRC plus at the high A level. So 46% better than league average, and nobody ahead of Dominguez on that list of the eight players equal to him or better in WRC plus. None of them are younger. So that's a really encouraging sign. You got names like Kyle Manzardo, Mason Wynn, Ellie De La Cruz, who other than strikeouts, also is having that kind of year that's building up a lot of hype. Uh, a couple surprising names. Miguel Palma on that list. Sedan Rafaela from the Red Sox. Colt Keith, Luis Angel Acuna. So Jason Dominguez is in you know, rare air anyway, getting to double A as quickly as he did. But it really a nice uh, recovery year for him. Even, even making it to high A and being as good as he was at high A, that was a step forward for him. But it's an even bigger step forward seeing how this year has ended. We're seeing something similar in the Brewers organization, Jackson Churio, who at various points this year has been the player, if you asked evaluators, who's the best player you've seen on the field in a minor league game this year, Jackson Churio's name comes up a lot. And people who listen to this show a lot know that my my background is Milwaukee, right? That's that's where my heart is. I'm a Brewers fan, so as much as I'm allowed to be a fan of, of a team at this stage of my working life, I think I'm still allowed to be a fan. I'm not in the clubhouse, so... I think it's okay, but Jackson Churio cruises through low A and high A, gets a bump up to double A, and just like Dominguez, moving up levels from low A to high A, K, K rate actually came down. I don't know what that really means because we're talking about samples that are smaller against more advanced competition, but it can't be a bad thing to show better skills against more advanced competition, especially when you're talking about someone so young. In Churio's case, we're talking about an 18-year-old. He's even younger than Jason Dominguez. And I think expectations now might be we could see him in 2023 if he handles the beginning of next season in the upper levels of the minor leagues anywhere near as well as he cruised through the two A-ball levels. As an organization desperate for hitting help, right, for offense, um, whether or not he's going to wind up center fielder, I mean, what... Uh, I mean, what teams have had gotten less from the center field position than than Milwaukee right now, right? If that's where he he ends up in Milwaukee, to have a, a plus hitter there, he he looks like a guy who could be 20, 25 homers a year, right? And he's got speed. Uh, he won't ever walk a ton, but if he ha- if he can cut the strikeout rate like he has already this season, I mean, you're looking at uh, truly one of the breakout players, I think, of this of this uh, minor league season and the prospect front, and Milwaukee needs it, right? This is uh, something I'm, I'm sure you as a 
a guy who may or may not be wearing a Brewers shirt as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, contributing to the bright uh, the bright tomorrow. Yeah, an impact player like this would go a really long way towards boosting a lineup that's been good but not great, looking to sort of get to that next level to become a more dangerous team uh, in future postseasons. I don't know if they're going to get there this year, but I think if they get there in 2023, there's actually a chance Jackson Churio is a part of the equation for them. Jordan Lawler also moved up. That was a few weeks ago. He got bumped up to double A. It just seems like his timetable is even faster than people expected back when he was drafted. Yeah, I mean, people thought he might be the best prospect in the draft, thought he might go 1-1. Pirates take Henry Davis instead and a little bit of a, a different play to spread money out. But uh, this kid is is everything that people, evaluators thought he was. And again, young, young for the age, even though he's uh, I think 20 years old at this at this point. Uh, remember, double-A players are not usually 18, 19, 20. They are, they are 22, 23. They're, they're a lot of college players at that point. And so he is... Uh, he's cooking, man. He's uh, a, a hitter with a lot of patience that's going to help him out. It's going to help you find um, deeper counts. Uh, it's going to limit the options a pitcher has. Um, the strikeout rate did has climbed a little bit in small samples as he's risen th- this season. So that's something to watch. But, I mean, you look at it's a guy with um, 39 steals, I think, this, this season. I added this up a little while ago. It could be, yeah, 39 in 45 tries. Uh, he has some of the swing and miss, but also has 16 homers at this point. So, uh, I mean, this is a organization that I think everyone in the prospecty minor league uh, uh, paying attention to realm is really excited about, right? They may not have the number one farm system in baseball, but certainly you look in these next five years, the Diamondbacks are absolutely a team to watch. And he's a big reason as they shore up the middle infield in a time when it feels like they've already taken huge steps with the outfield um, with a couple of the recent additions they've had at the major league level. Yeah, I think with Lawler, we're probably going to see him spend next year's split between AA and AAA, and then we're yeah. talking about him as an early 2024 call-up, an opening day uh, option then. Maybe late 2023, depending on where they stand in the wildcard race. And I think a lot, a lot hinges on what they get from Geraldo Perdomo. And if they're shopping in the free agent bin, potentially, I've I've mentioned Trey Turner as someone. I was like, hey, put Trey Turner on the Diamondbacks as they bring up this young core. And that's one way to get a lot better in free agency. I don't know if they're actually going to do that. Of course, it's just pure speculation. But the favorite, my favorite kind of speculation is to put a star player in a place where we don't always put star players. Uh, but Jordan Lawler, really big step forward for him this season. Just seeing him at three different levels already, having a lot of success at the first two don't sweat it if he continues to strike out close to 30% of the time at double A. He's still very young, having just turned 20 back in July. Let's talk about a few other players that have shown a lot in the minors this year. How about Kyle Manzardo in the Rays organization? He is mashing in a late season promotion to double A. His numbers are just gross. 346, 430, 642. It's almost the same line he had at high A. Kyle Manzardo is another one of those guys that I don't think I saw him on any sort of top 100 list coming into the season, and now he's in the conversation to be a top 20, top 25 overall prospect for a lot of people. Yeah, he deserves so much more attention. So, 22 year old kid, right? He went to school, so he's not he's not among the like the 18, 19 year old hype that you're going to get um, first round talent type stuff. Second rounder uh, last year, first base is is such an unsettled spot for the Rays. Has been for a little bit. They've been cycling through Harold Ramirez, 
a, an outfielder. G-Man Choi, Jonathan Aranda, maybe Yandy Diaz has been over there uh, too. He's at the, at the corners on the infield. And Manzardo, is a, he's a guy who has this, maybe my favorite trait among hitters, uh, the even or close to even walk to strikeout, right? It's a beautiful thing to see. Going back to Washington State, he was he was a 50-50 um, walk to strikeout guy. And, uh, man, that changes the game, especially as you get to higher levels. And, guys, the stuff gets better. When you can sort of winnow a pitcher's um, – the, the the arsenal he has, the number of pitches you know he can command, get deeper into counts, uh, That that's going to help you so much adjust to a level, see more pitches, um, say, hey, I know he can't command the curveball, so I'm, I'm not, I'm throwing that out the window as we get into this, you know, 3-2 count or whatever. Um, that's big, and he's a guy who has already climbed quickly uh, coming out of school and Dude, these these numbers are crazy. These like this is it's it's hard to look at this and really uh, know what to what to project in the majors because it's been the same everywhere and it's like one dot stuff. Um, it is it's a three hundred thirty hitter in the minors, right? Three thirty three hitter, uh, four thirty three on base, one dot oh six zero OPS, and it's a small sample. Okay, it's it's one hundred two minor league games, but you toss in his college numbers and it's like. Uh, we saw this in Pittsburgh with uh, Brian Reynolds. Uh, he, he was an incredible hitter at every level from Vanderbilt up through the minors, and he got to the majors, and he was doing it there too. And he's he's had some roller coaster times, but what's to say Manzardo can't be that guy who comes up and gets you? Maybe it's not 300, but maybe it's a 285 hitter, 375 on base percentage, 20 homers. He's he's not a real big power guy, but I think there's something in there. Um, there's a lot of value in a guy like this. I think the Rays. For all the the praise they get, and, and I think a lot of it's deserved, they've also shown in the last few drafts they don't really care about traditional body type or uh, having a, a clear cut ability to play a position really well. Right there, there are things they do that are pretty outside the box with how early they're willing to take a player like this. I mean, Washington State's not a it's not a powerhouse baseball school. Uh, the Pac-12, of course, yeah. is good, but you don't think about Washington State as a place where a lot of major league players come from. So maybe people overlooked that about him. Maybe people were skeptical because of the body, but the Rays seem to have found another impact player. It reminds me a little bit, profile-wise, of, of Vinny Pasquantino. I mean, the Royals drafted him in the 11th round, so a pretty big difference in terms of where those guys were selected. Um, but just in terms of controlling the zone really well, mashing at every stop along the way so far, moving pretty quickly... I have to say, maybe we see Kyle Manzardo actually up at some point next season. Because you mentioned first base, it has been a revolving door for a while for the Rays. They love to mix and match at so many positions. If they get a guy like Manzardo and he hits against you know, righties and lefties, then they'll just mix and match at a different position where they've got you know, more capable defenders. That's That's the easy way around it. Yeah, they're a team that this year is going to have one... Player with 20 homers, maybe. Uh, Rosarena's going to get there. He's, he's going to have a 20-30 season. Beyond that, this is a team that has uh, problems from a traditional sense. Right, It's not a real big power hitting team. They have speed, uh, mostly from one guy. Um, they have on base. That's kind of the way they're built if you're going to really pin it down, is that they're the team that gets on base quite a lot. And he is in this mold. But I, from talking in the last couple of years to some people in the, in the Rays' Uh, front office is they're 
approaches, they think they can unlock something with these guys. And they haven't always been right. Right, Yandy Diaz is someone they said, this guy hits the ball hard. Now, the obvious problem is he hits it right into the dirt. Um, and so he's going to bat 300, but he's going to have five to 10 homers. And that's, that's really it. And if there's a team that can unlock Yandy Diaz, it's, he's going to be a, if he can be a 15 to 20 homer guy somewhere, that's a very valuable player. And they haven't quite been able to do that, but they've taken a chance on a Harold Ramirez who came up in the, in the Pittsburgh system when I was covering them and, and, uh, Clint Hurdle called him the bone collector because he just got singles every time. He just got base <laughs> hits nonstop. And they've, Turned him into a guy who can hit 320 in the majors and only give you a handful of, of homers. But again, if you could unlock that guy's swing a little bit, and maybe Manzardo's a, a, a similar type, if they can get him to the majors and unlock some power, he's already got the hit tool down. Right? He's a guy who I who I think can hit 300 in the majors and can do it consistently. Um, and if you can add some of that traditional corner infield pop, this could be a, this could be a really talented player. Yeah, the way the Rays manufacture their runs is pretty different than the way most teams do. They do not hit that many home runs, and the sources of home runs they have are, you mentioned a Rosarana, Isak Paredes has 18 home runs in 321 plate appearances, and yet it doesn't feel like he's an everyday guy for them. He's more of a play-the-matchups guy. He's going to play less than 100 games, I think, this season. Like, he's going to be right at the 100 mark. Um yeah, I think they could squeeze more home runs out of this roster if they wanted, but I don't think it's what they're choosing to do. You know, I think they're going to mix and match in a way that um, maybe gives up or foregoes a little bit of the power in order to get more guys on base. Yeah, so maybe they're built more like a team offensively, like like Cleveland. Right? I think yeah. the Guardians are one of those teams. They don't have a ton of thump. They don't strike out much. That can be a pain. That can that can be a lot of wear and tear on opposing pitching staffs come playoff time. It's easy to look at a team that is missing power and be skeptical about what they're going to do against top-level pitching. But Yandy Diaz, who you mentioned, leads the team with a 147 WRC+. He's got a 404 OBP. He's on base constantly. He walks a lot more than he strikes out. He's got a 9.8% strikeout rate this year, by the way. So, sure, he's a, a 10-homer guy, maybe over a full season's worth of plate appearances, but that's still a really valuable offensive player. The Bone Collector is a great nickname for a guy <laughs> that just gets a bunch of singles. Harold Ramirez does it a pretty similar way. He doesn't walk nearly as much, but it's a low strikeout rate. Does a good job just putting the ball in play. Occasional power, a little bit of speed. A Rosarena is the guy we've seen on the big stage before that can do pretty much everything. And I think the thing that's really impressed me about his season so far is I thought with his approach and, and swinging as many pitches outside the strike zone as he does, especially earlier in the year, he had a pretty high O swing percentage. I thought the K rate was going to stay up in that 28% range. He's cut that down. He's striking out a lot less than he did upon arrival in 2020 and throughout 2021. He's at 23.3% with the K rate. So this looks like a almost a more dangerous version of a Rosarena because he's putting the ball in play a bit more often. Yeah, and he's just stealing at will lately, especially. Not that I have him on my fantasy team, but um, he is a guy who, uh, if you go back to that Cleveland comp you made a second ago, the Rays are doing something similar to Cleveland without having the superstar. Rosarena is as much of a superstar as they have in that lineup, but they've basically done this with a like a shoestring budget lineup with all due respect to the guys in this lineup. They're just not doing it with stars. Whereas Cleveland has uh, <laughs> locked up its, its superstar Jose Ramirez on an extremely friendly uh, contract. So they've done it in a little bit of a different way, but um, a Rosa Reina is about as good as they have. And we've seen in the, in the postseason, he's a game changer where 
he can basically win you a series if you get good pitching, which they have pitching in all sorts, a variety of pitching in spades, and and they can beat you a bunch of different ways. But he's again going to be the X factor as they as they hit the postseason, and they're going to have to win a wild card here. Um, but he's he's a big reason they can do it. The other thing with the Rays that could change a lot at the end of the season is Wander Franco. We just have not seen him healthy this year. Of the games he's played, I don't think he's been at 100% for a decent share of those so far. I still think he's going to be a special player. There's a ton to like in this profile. It's strange to say that about a player at 263, 306, 394 because it's a step back from what we saw when he debuted last year. Almost a similar almost identical sample size of games. 70 games last year as a rookie. Wander hit 288 with a 347 OBP and a 463 slugging percentage. And I think most of us looked at that and said, that's an amazing starting point for a 20-year-old rookie. And now it's going to be 300 plus, 363, 70 OBP, and maybe a 500 slug. And he's going to do that for the next 10 years. And there's a little bit of a delay, but if he's healthy come October... He could be that other guy that you look yeah. at next to a Rosarena and say that's the that's the other guy we really don't want to face in this lineup. Yeah, I don't think we've seen nearly enough at the big league level from Franco to believe that he is not the guy he was coming up. Right, that something has changed in the in the long term projection. This is he was consistently such a um, such an elite hitter from a contact perspective. Yes, with a little bit of pop and and uh, never a whole lot of speed, but. Uh, an all-around hitting game that um, I, I still think that guy's there. And he also doesn't have to fight for the contract. He's got that wrapped up. There shouldn't be a whole lot of pressure on him. Um, yes, he can. Uh, you do not have a, a pitcher out there who is excited to face uh, Wander Franco, even even in this, uh, this sort of season. You can count me among the people that would have guessed Josh Lowe factoring into a yeah. bigger role with all the yeah. injuries they've had, the need for some power. Low, mostly spending this season as an up-and-down guy. His most recent stretch with the Rays looked like it was more productive. I saw some signs of growth. In the minors this year, 11 homers, 16 for 17 as a base dealer again in 68 games with AAA Durham. It's a 294, 384, 516 line. The number that jumps off the page, though, for me, Steven, a 32.3% K rate at AAA. That's where I think if we'd seen some improvement, Maybe there would have been a path back to a prominent role for Lowe this season. I don't don't think they're going to necessarily squeeze him in as a bigger part of their plans in these final weeks. No, he he had been trending in the right direction as he climbed the upper levels of the minors because he he started out as more of a thirty percent K rate guy and was down um, in twenty nineteen. He was at twenty five percent twenty twenty one at AAA after losing that season twenty twenty. 26%. And if he can live in that range, you can do that. That's, that's fine. He has, um, he has the different elements to his game that make him uh, a valuable player, but he just was not able to pull that together at the major league level. And of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think through which guys were around opening day, which rookies came around opening day or, or around there and haven't been able to strike, uh, haven't been able to stick around through the season. He's one of the bigger names. I think that was unable to really hack it at the major league level and and i don't see him playing a part there down the stretch here um but certainly next year he'll get he'll get some run yeah for the level it's still really good overall production 137 wrc plus you'll take that he had 142 it was the mark a year ago we're talking about a guy that's now had 
179 games at AAA over the last two seasons, showing power, showing speed, playing good defense in center field. Very surprising to me that he doesn't have some kind of role on the big club right now. That swing and miss must be a big part of why it's played out that way. Let's talk about Jordan Walker for a moment, getting back to some other players that have been great in AA this year. Strikeout rate down against better competition. You'd love to see that down from 27% to 21.9% about 30% better than a league average hitter. Walker won't turn 21 until May. I started to look at where he might fit in with the Cardinals because you have Nolan Arenado seemingly staying in St. Louis, I I think for the long, long haul, even if he ends up opting out and getting an extension or however it works, it's just hard to imagine him leaving completely. But Jordan Walker has been playing a bit in the outfield this year, 20 games played in right field. So I think if we're going to see Walker in the lineup with Arenado at some point in 2023, it's probably Walker playing somewhere in that outfield rotation. Yeah, if you haven't seen Walker play, this is a big dude. Like 6'5", I think 220-225. He can, I do think he can occupy a couple different spots out there. And, and right field seems to make a lot of sense because I think you just have to roll the punches on this one. You have Nolan Arenado and you're not going to find a better third baseman. So he's staying there until he's not healthy anymore or he wants to move elsewhere. Um, Walker has, has checked every box. And so he's at the point where, you know, in double A, raking a double A, you have to start to think at that point, right? The stuff getting real stage of where, where does he fit? How do we navigate this? Is he blocked? Uh, what are we doing? A lot of that stuff figures itself out. And I, I don't think there's an obvious thing to do, um, as they, they get him up. But I, I think that's kind of, that's kind of standard. You need to leave yourself options and they have options here. Um, certainly if Arenado got injured, but that hasn't really happened to him. It hasn't really been a problem for him. So you look at the outfield, the outfield uh, situation there, and, you know, they they didn't pull off the Soto trade this year in part because, uh, you know, maybe they want, didn't want to trade Dylan Carlson or Mason Wynn, who's, who's been great as well, uh, or Jordan Walker, who's, who's the, the, the whole, um, I mean, one of the biggest reasons to feel good about their future. And, there's power in there. I think there is even more power in that profile. There's speed. Uh, he and Mason Wynn are both young for the level um, at 20 years old. I think next year you start Walker at AAA and, or you could do AA, but I think he's shown you plenty at AA. You start him at AAA and just kind of start looking for an opportunity in the majors. See if he knocks down the door. Uh, maybe he doesn't and you just keep him keep him rolling. And I think you're going to be fine at the major league level with who we got, Lars Newtbar. Uh, Tyler O'Neill, Dylan Carlson, like you're you're all right in that outfield, uh, but I do think there there come opportunities with injury or um, maybe you have uh, I mean you have spots opening up right. Assuming Albert Pujols gets his 700 and, and goes off and retires into the sunset, um, Corey Dickerson would vacate a spot as well. You had those three guys I just named, and, and adding a fourth, it's not hard to fit him in the DH situation uh, and just one injury, which we've seen um, a good bit of injury from this team too, that something's going to open up. And I think if you start him at AAA, uh, one phone call away, he'd, he'd be pretty well positioned to to come up because you, you're you just not going to take that job for Nolan Arenado. And that's that's a good problem to have. Yeah, I was just thinking about what it would even look like if, if Arenado opts out, which he yeah. can do after this season, he's in the middle of a nine-year, $275 million contract. So he's signed through 2027. If he doesn't opt out, it's five more years. I'm guessing he's looking for year six, year seven to be tacked on to the back. We've seen players exercise opt-outs and stay put. 
I think CC Sabathia with the Yankees a few years ago is one of the first players that was doing something like this. I see this going more down that road than the Arenado decides to just bolt from St. Louis and, and go somewhere else entirely. It seems like a good fit just in terms of a player and organization. Yeah, it does. And it's one where like as skills erode, you might hate those last couple of years, but there's a reason you're doing it now, right? He's hitting, he would be hitting free agency at a very good time for himself. Having had this incredible, you know, in the MVP conversation caliber season, um, coming off of two years that were weird and non Arenado like, and now he's in St. Louis proving that what he, what he's doing there is not a Coors effect type thing. This guy is, a He's been awesome. He's going to hit 30 homers this year, 300 average. Um, you know, what he's doing with, with Goldschmidt is is pretty special there. And so, yeah, I think that could be a, a, a realistic way to see this one play out. Um, and they give him, yeah, you give him those, those couple of years to take him through age. What would that be? I mean, just the late 30s. And you, you deal with it. You know, he is your Albert Pujols maybe by the end of it sitting at the DH spot. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that go down. But you're playing for a World Series pretty much every year for the first several years of that deal. Maybe for the entire thing. They don't rebuild very often in St. Louis. If you could keep him on this deal, that would be ideal. But I, that's up to him at this point almost. It's one of those things. Maybe he's fine to just leave it alone. But I think if there's any belief he can tack on a few extra years, that's what you should do if you can do that. If you're lucky enough to be in a position like Nolan Arenado is in right now. Let's move on to the minor league players having a union. This is massive. This came up quickly. In the span of, what, a month, we learned that this was a process they were pursuing, and it has reached the point where it is already official. And you think about all these issues that minor league players have dealt with forever, but have been much more frequently documented in recent years. Poor pay, poor housing conditions, bad travel schedules, uh, terrible nutrition, just things that are unnecessary when you talk about the scope of baseball as an industry, things are going to change quickly. Things will get better in terms of conditions, no doubt in my mind about that. Both sides, both the uh, the league and the minor league players are hoping to get a new deal in place before the start of the 2023 season. But I just started to wonder if that drags on through the winter, if the negotiations for their collective bargain agreement if that becomes contentious, which it probably will, would be stunned if it didn't, even though this has all gone really well. Another lockout. Another. <laughs> well, it's so different, though, at the minor league level, because I think minor league teams as businesses are such yeah. all hands on deck operations where every single home game matters. Those teams just felt a lost season in 2020. So the appetite of people who own minor league franchises to lose games potentially is zero. Yeah. Yeah. There's no wiggle room there. So I wonder if, if that will be leveraged against the players potentially as they try and, and work out this first agreement. Yeah. I mean, so much of the, the leverage in the, in the major league lockout was, Hey, listen, the owners are being real clear. They're okay with missing games. Uh, could be two weeks, could be a month, uh, could cut much deeper into the season. And there isn't going to be that same amount, nor is there quite as much leverage on the player front um, than major leaguers with the sway and the platform they have and whatever. But there's a, there's a, has been a groundswell of support behind the minor leaguers for a couple of years now. That's the whole reason we're here today. It's been interesting to see this play out because this idea has been around for some time, right? Why, hey, why aren't, minor leaguers 
covered by the MLBPA. And the first time you explain it to someone, they're kind of like, what? That doesn't really make sense. And you have to really get into the nitty gritty. How it's like, oh, they're almost at like, um, they're, they have like opposite desires and, and it wouldn't really work. And, and so this has been percolating for a while and with the PA working on this idea. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks back, just two weeks ago, really, that we heard about it. But I'm sure the league had heard about it beforehand. And I think part of this was a PR play on their part to not fight it. Um, first off, if they have the votes, you can't do a whole lot about it. But they could have certainly not voluntarily recognized um, the, the the union, the, the minor leaguers joining the union. Um, but they did. And I think that was uh, probably a smart play on their part to not fight this. Um, they weren't going to weren't going to win it anyway. And so, yeah, we're in a position now where the, the long-term concern is, do they contract more teams? Some of that is set in stone for, for the near future, but um, it seems like that's the desire of owners in the league in the long-term have fewer jobs out there, which uh, is why it's, it's timely and important now that they, the minor leaguers unionize because for as much as you like public pressure and shame can get, uh, better living conditions, better housing, better pay in the minors. That's what we've seen like team by team over the last few years with Harry Marino and, and advocates of the minor leaguers um, getting little wins here and there by shaming the whoever. I, I don't want to call it the teams. I don't remember exactly who it was, but this team's, you know, double A team has five guys crashing on air mattresses in an apartment in wherever. And, uh, you put that on, on social media, you'd be, you'd be shocked how quickly that, that situation gets resolved. And so we've seen uh, sort of instance by instance, it get case by case, get get addressed. And this is just going to be a much more sweeping way to do it. So um, long time coming, but I think it is a, an important time for this to come together if they're going to deal with what's ahead, which is, I think, the, the league wanting fewer, a little less of the whole minor league thing. That's where when Keith and I discussed this last week, it was it seems like a certainty that at the next opportunity – to reduce the number of minor league teams, the league will do that. They will cut down the number of affiliates. I don't think, as I understand it at least, they can't do that immediately. They can yeah. announce changes for later or hint at that or threaten it, but they can't actually implement that until contracts that they currently have go away. I imagine we're going to have a, a future where the minor leagues are smaller, whether that's three years, five years, 10 years down the road from now the way minor league baseball looks today is going to be a lot different. And this is still, this is a massive win for the players because conditions will get better. They will. Yeah. If you shrink the minor leagues, do you see an increase in support and an appetite for independent ball? Do you see more markets where those leagues become viable? I think it, it leads to another question for, for those groups. Like, oh, how are they going to pay the players? How are they going to treat players well enough to be a viable alternative for development and continuing down this path of trying to be a professional ball player. It has to be similar if it's actually going to be a legitimate competitive alternative. If the league is successful in cutting jobs, cutting teams, which I think they have the power to do eventually, I think the end result is just fewer guys playing pro ball in the U.S. Because you can sell yourself on the hope and a dream of getting drafted and it used to be like the 40th round, okay? And they're giving me $10 to sign. And I'm going to do it because I think I can, I'm going to give it two years and figure out if I turn into something. There's just a lot less of that, right? First off, we cut the draft down in half. Um, and then a- after that, it's 
teams are going to be more cutthroat with what they do with the roster spots. We've got f- fewer spots. We got we can sure we can have a bunch of kids at our, our complexes in in Florida, Arizona, whatever, work them out. But uh, fact is, if we don't see this guy as a major leaguer, um, we don't have a lot of room for filler. And I think you're going to see more and more of that where if a guy is not early on identified as someone with major league potential, whether that's one great pitch or all around, you know, a great defender who can help on the base passes, whatever. I think it's just like there are fewer, fewer um, long shots and the long shots who go the independent route. Great. We'll see. I think, I think we'll see more success stories on that front because we will see more good players going to independent ball route. But if you're on the line and you can't afford to spend two years chasing that baseball dream, you're not going to do it. You're going to you're going to say, I think I'm just going to go, you know, follow my second career already because there's it's just too long of a shot for me. Um, not making enough money in the indie ball route or, or whatever to uh, to really chase this major league dream. By the way, just a few things that I've, I've seen along the way reading various stories about this. Evan Drellick's done a great job covering it for The Athletic. I read a great piece at Baseball Prospectus. This is where I saw this mentioned. There are four years left, of course, in the current Major League CBA that we just had the lockout for. There are eight years left in the player development licenses issued to the remaining minor league teams. So that's why I think we're in this sort of safe zone right now where the the big changes can't happen immediately, but it's out there on the horizon. Playing devil's advocate from the if we were starting professional baseball from scratch today perspective, would the minor leagues look the way they do? Would we build it this way if we were building it from scratch? Would we have affiliates scattered all around the country? Probably not, right? I mean, yeah. it's not it's not convenient from a player development standpoint to take 12 to 15% of your organization and send it off to a, a corner of the country that might be 2,000 miles away from where your big league team is. That's not... It's not efficient. It's not ideal. Is it the club approach? Like, first off, Yanni Diaz just hit a home run just because he heard what we were saying. Right on time, yeah. Scorching the ball into the ground. I would never, to his face, tell him he hits the ball on the ground too much. He is (laughs) a massive human. I would be afraid to say that. He said, you see that launch angle, 28 degrees? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, that was for you guys, nerds. I heard that, you nerds. Yeah, yeah. If you were redesigning this whole thing, first off, you just look for a way for players to be major league ready quicker, right? Like, yeah, you want to speed it up, what, for sure. There, there is no other sport. I, th- I hope I'm not speaking like uh, incorrectly and out of turn here. I don't think there's another sport where it takes this long for the guys to get to the top level. I mean, unless you're talking about like, like uh, you know, European soccer development, they go through the club system, whatever. But basketball, you get drafted out of school, whatever, and the next year you're playing. Football, you might have a year to sit. But basically, as soon as you're drafted, you're, there is no minor leagues. Hockey, there is some, but I don't think it takes as long. I think a first-round pick can be up almost immediately. Um, baseball, it's a rule. You're going to go through the minors no matter who you are. And, I mean, we have a very small list of exceptions of guys who flew through the minors or skipped altogether. But um, it's hard. It's so ingrained in what the game is today. It's so much a part of what baseball, Major League Baseball is. And... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how you'd redesign it in a better way because the, the the talent level is so different at the high level than it is where guys are coming from. Even if you went to an academy system. Yeah. Again, we're, we're not doing this because we think this is better for the people involved 
currently. It would be disastrous to flip the switch and make this change. But just thinking through the logistics of how it works, if you had that, if you had an academy system where every major league team had all the ample housing and indoor facilities to train year-round in their major league city. So then you've got 100-plus players in every organization who are not on the big league roster, in theory, who all are working out of the same place at very different levels. You'd still have to put them into groups. You'd still have this concept of, of A and AA and AAA. It'd be the same. Like Think about a, think about high school sports. you got varsity, you got JV, you got the freshman team. Same kind of thing. Like, yes, they're all one program, but they're still tiered into groups. Then you have to go play the other groups. So you still have to travel. You still have to make your way around a little bit. Maybe you would travel only within your division to reduce travel costs. You'd see a lot of the same competition. That's not necessarily good for player development. You'd still have to deal with being on the road. You'd still have some of those logistical hurdles. And then you'd say, well, what facilities are you going to use? Are you going to have little stadiums next to the big stadiums? Are you going to let these guys play in the big stadiums while the major league club is on the road? Like That's kind of weird. And then you're also kind of putting yourself in this position where for all these mid-sized cities, double-A and triple-A cities especially, but obviously low-A and high-A, those are a lot of environments where baseball is far away if you are looking to watch Major League Baseball. But the minor league team closest to you is a viable alternative. Just go see baseball with your family as a kid, whatever it might be. All of that, you start kind of thinking about how that would all work. It would probably hurt the game to go into an academy system. Yeah, Just from a a general interest perspective, even if the way things are done now creates various headaches that people have just learned to live with over the past, well, 100 years now. Maybe we got a sneak peek of it when in 2020 when they had the the alternate sites. Maybe Mm -hmm. that was a little bit of what that would look like is um, maybe your academy. Certainly your academy is not going to be based around the stadium because there's just not enough real estate for it. So you'd have to have your academy. I don't know if it's it's a, a nearby city or just out in the suburbs. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe those games aren't open to fans. You know, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's interesting. You're right, because you could play feature games in the in the, the Major League ballpark or whatever, um, and that could work nicely. But um, I think a lot of it, a lot more of it would happen uh, under wraps. Mm-hmm. And I think it would actually make a much more insulated environment around Major League, uh, the, the whole organization. Um it would be actually very interesting to play that out and like sort of a thought experiment of what that would look like because it is it behooves every single minor league franchise to promote players, promote everything to get people out to the ballpark, be an advocate for baseball in whatever city they're located. I grew up in Lansing. Um, we had the Lansing Lugnuts there. I'd love to go watch them. I didn't actually care what organization they were aligned with. I think it was the, the Blue Jays at the time. Uh, Cubs, actually. Mark Pryor once pitched there. Um but uh, if you took that away and you put the the Pirates in Altoona and have all their minor leaguers there the way it was during the the during 2020, um, I think you play a lot more invisibly. Um, and teams probably would like that. You know, teams would probably like it if they're if they're prospects. They might go. They might go play the Brewers. But um, you probably it probably doesn't help you all that much to bring in 2,000 fans a, a game. They might as well just play without fans. I don't know. This is. I don't know if it helps you develop players any faster. Do you get better entirely from internal training? Like if you turn all these academies into the best high tech facilities that players attend on their own, right? If you 
you have driveline level facilities for right. every major league team that they run themselves. Do you make big leaguers faster focusing on everybody in that environment with fewer minor league games? I, I don't know. I think that's a fair open question. And even if you did it kind of in the satellite way you described where, you know, for, yeah, if, if Pittsburgh said Altoona is going to be our, our alternate yeah. site, everyone's going to be in Altoona. And then, you know, people out there can go watch because we got a stadium there already. That's a little better, but it starts to turn the minor leagues into what complex ball already is. What happens on the backfields yep. in Arizona and Florida? That's not good. That's not accessible to people. That's not a that's not a game that we're all going to watch and enjoy together. Would you care if you're a team? Do you care if it's accessible? Because if if your goal is not to get people out to the ballpark, not to be an entertaining product, you're if you just want to um, you want to develop guys as quickly as possible. I think that might be the way you do it. And you might, I mean, there's some downsides of not playing in front of fans, right? But is playing in front of um, not a lot of fans and Wilkes-Barre going to really change how good of a major leaguer you are? Um, so maybe you have the occasional big league game or, or you um, guys who do really well that week or something can play a feature game Saturday in the big league park uh, and you'll pick a guy who's 18 years old and you'll have a pitcher who's 24 and you'll, you, I don't know. There, there, <laughs> there are ways you could, you could promote different things. You could allow fans in there. But I, I almost think that if you were to give, you know, truth serum to, to a, a player development executive and be like, Hey, if you could just draw up a, a way to design your system and you don't care about fans or promotion or any of that, just developing the best players the quickest, I think it would be where we train, 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 and we go on the backfields. And we you face high level competition or whatever, but I don't think that they probably see that much value in bouncing between small minor league cities, jumping from one level to the next means going to a new find a new apartment in a new um, you know Alabama town and facing new competition there on on that schedule. Teams love control. They love the way you can drop a spring training schedule. Um, and uh, if you could just throw every single minor league city under the bus then that, that that would probably be a pretty quick way to develop guys. Yeah, and I also thought maybe the other way logistically it could work one day is to take what you have in spring training, have all those facilities, add more around that in terms of, of housing and, and places where players can eat and you can kind of centralize all of it in Arizona and Florida, max out the facilities there. Then you've cut down the travel issue. But again, you've you've put all the players in two locations that people won't get to see. So how important that is to the powers that be in Major League Baseball, I imagine it's a lot less important to them than people like you and I would like it to be. We want baseball to be everywhere and easy for people to get to. Things are going to change. It's just a question of, of how much, but obviously good news for the minor league players to have that union behind them just because it's it's going to change their conditions on a day-to-day -day basis in a very big way. We are going to go uh, on our way out. A quick reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. On Twitter, you can find Stephen at Stephen J. Nesbitt. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend.